That's Isaiah chapter 52, reading from verse 13. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 53 to the end. And that's verse 12. So from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. On her 21st birthday, Her Majesty the Queen made a promise from Cape Town, South Africa. I declare before you all, she said, that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted 
to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. And had the queen failed to keep that promise, I doubt the queue of mourners lining up to pay their last respects would have been a 25-hour wait. There's a unique glory that belongs to servants, isn't there? The point of the passage that Ian just read moments ago for us is this. Royal glory belongs to God's servant. Royal glory belongs to God's servant. The servant about whom Isaiah prophesied was Jesus Christ. He he wrote this prophecy 700 years before the birth of Christ. And royal glory belongs to Jesus because his cross serves us with salvation. Now perhaps you're here today and you feel about as confused by the passage Ian read for us as the Ethiopian eunuch did as he read it all those years ago. More confused than consumed by the message of a suffering Christ. And if that's you, allow me to say that as Philip opened his mouth, And explains to him the good news about Jesus from this passage. My hope is to do the same for you today. Why is that? Well, because your journey to heaven can begin in one place alone. The cross of Jesus Christ. The gates of heaven open to believers in one thing alone. The cross of Jesus Christ. Christ. And the joys of heaven will be enjoyed by those who have believed and treasured one thing alone, the cross of Jesus Christ. And the royal glory which belongs to Christ is enjoyed by those who worship Christ for the cross alone. It's the cross from beginning to world without end. Now, Isaiah's original audience needed a prophecy about salvation. They had been ripped from their home and they had been dragged into exile in Babylon. It was God's judgment against their sin. But God also promised through Isaiah a mesmerizing reversal, a reversal that would turn their living nightmare into a four-dimensional dream. And that would be because this promised servant of the Lord could free them from the very thing that had caused their exile, their sin. In Isaiah 52 verse 13, do look at it if you have your Bible with me. God himself says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. That is, my servant, Jesus Christ, will know how to accomplish the salvation that you need. You think that what you need is deliverance from Babylon. But what you really need is deliverance from the thing that took you to Babylon. Namely, your sin. And my servant will know exactly how to deliver you from so cruel an enemy and so great a problem. And what will be the result of all this? Well, God continues in verse 13. He shall be high and lifted up. 
high in, uh, and, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. That is, God is saying, just as many, many people will be astonished at my servant's suffering and ask themselves, is this disfigured walking mass of blood even human? So also will many be cleansed when they understand what is suffering was really for. Even the kings of the earth, says God, will be stunned into silence because they have never seen nor heard of royal glory belonging to one who suffered for so much for their sake. And so as we begin today, let me ask you, if the kings of the earth And if our late queen herself would shut their mouths on account of such royal glory belonging to so great a servant, then ought not we? Ought we not shut our mouths in repentance and open them again in confession and praise and adoration of the suffering servant worthy of royal glory? Now Isaiah 53 contains four standard, uh, stanzas that tell us how Jesus Christ went about accomplishing so great a salvation. This salvation that resulted in royal glory being given to him. And so I want us to ask how did he in fact accomplish this salvation. And first we see covertly. Covertly. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 53. We read... Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And so as Isaiah prepares to explain exactly how God's servant would rescue us, he opens with this question, who has believed what he has heard from us? Because as we'll see, the method, the means, the strategy, the way that God used to save sinners will be unbelievable from a human perspective. And he asks, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because if Jesus Christ hadn't been revealed as the arm of the Lord, then nobody in their right mind would ever have believed it. From an earthly perspective, with the eyes of mere flesh, Jesus Christ looked like a nobody. Born in a, in a in a stable to a teenager, surrounded by animals, laid in a feeding trough, working as a carpenter, having nowhere to lay his head. What a CV. 
And as Jesus, and as the Jews rather, looked around Babylon, the land of their captivity, the, the superpower of the day, and then heard Isaiah promising this savior, they inevitably imagined someone with the muscles of Samson. Uh, the looks of Joseph, the military might of David, the, the riches of Solomon, and the leadership skills of Joshua. Or if you don't know who any of those men are, think the muscles of Arnie, the looks of Brad Pitt, the military might of Jason Bourne, and the riches of Elon Musk. But instead, they got someone who looked more like a young plant. They got someone who, instead of bursting on the scene like a mighty oak or a fruit tree, writes one commentator, appeared as a sprout or like a a little plant struggling for life in unwatered ground. So that instead of being affirmed, Jesus was despised. And instead of being accepted, Jesus was rejected. And instead of leading the way to unceasing celebrations, Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from, men, one from whom men hide their faces, and we esteemed him not, underlined, all in bold. So how on earth was this a wise strategy? Hugh, you said five minutes ago that this servant of the Lord, this savior, would be wise and would know how to pull off so great a salvation. How could dressing like a young plant ever be a good idea? From a, from a PR perspective, the muscles of Samson or Arnie, the looks of Joseph or Brad Pitt, the military might of David or Jason Bourne, the riches of Solomon or Elon Musk would have helped to convince the world that you are, in fact, the savior of the world. But friends, those external things can only meet external needs. And those earthly resources can only solve earthly concerns. So that if Jesus had appeared with all of that external and worldly glory, then men and women would have trusted him to meet external and worldly needs. That's not why he came. Our needs are infinitely greater. Jesus had come to meet the problem that is invisible. Jesus had come to meet the need that destroys us from the inside out. So a covert operation was genius. Because no one would ever think to go to Jesus of Nazareth for worldly support. No one goes to a homeless man for riches. Friend, do you see what your deepest need really is? Do you see that your greatest need has nothing to do with your location, with your vocation, or with your station in life? Your greatest need is having your sin forgiven. And if you can see that, then run to the Jesus whose arms are open to receive you. And once you get to Jesus, then join all of heaven 
and join every member of Hoylake Evangelical Church in rendering royal glory to him. If you don't see your greatest need, it's because you are far too conscious of lesser needs, far too conscious of external needs, far too conscious of worldly needs to see the most profound need of all. But friends, it is still there, whether you see it or not. You know, Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States of America. And while he was in office, he took a knife and he sliced out of the Bible all of the parts that didn't make any sense to him or that he considered to be worthless. And one author says about 10% of the Bible survived the operation. But it wasn't the Bible that needed an operation It was the eyes of Jefferson's soul. See, his eyes couldn't see the saving arm of the Lord for the carpenter that was stood before him. And if that's you today, only God can open your eyes. Only God. I can't do that for you. You most certainly can't do that for you. Tanya didn't do it for herself. Amy didn't do it for herself. The Ethiopian eunuch didn't do it for himself. Only the arm of the Lord can do that for you. So friend, ask him and seek him and pound on his door until he comes to answer to you. So how did Jesus accomplish this salvation? Well, number one, covertly. But second, I want us to see vicariously. Uh, Look at verse 4. It says this, surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How could the arm of the Lord, the servant of God, How could the arm of the Lord Jesus Christ achieve salvation? Answer vicariously. That is, as a substitute for us. By dying the death of a substitute in our place. See, we all thought that Jesus Christ was a loser. As he carried around sorrows and griefs wherever he went. But in reality, those were our sorrows. And those were our griefs caused by our sin. Feeling what we ought to feel on account of our sin. We, we thought that he was being stricken, smitten by God and afflicted by God for his sin. But in reality... He was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced through as though guilty of my hideous pride. As though guilty of a disgustingly hard heart. 
pierced for your lies, your theft, your double tongue, our selfishness, our greed, our idolatry. Jesus was crushed by God for all those times that we have placed our hands over our ears to avoid hearing what God has to say to us in his most holy word. For the times that we have loaded a revolver in the face of God and then walked away with his blessings. For the times that we have taken God's law, thrown it on the ground and trampled it into the scum of the earth. Jesus was treated by God as though he were a cosmic traitor. So that cosmic traitors like me Cosmic traitors like you could walk away free, justified, cleansed, redeemed, ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Friend, do you get this? Do you understand what Isaiah is saying. Has the penny dropped in your life? Have the lights gone on or are you still lost in the dark? Where are you standing today, friend? If you are still lost in the dark, then perhaps an illustration would help you. In his book, The Cross-Centered Life, C.J. Mahaney writes this. He says, in World War II, Ernest Gordon was a British captive in a Japanese prison camp by the River Kwai in Burma, where the POW's prisoners of war were forced to build a railroad of death for transporting Japanese troops to the battlefront. They were tortured, starved, and worked to the point of exhaustion. Gordon survived the horrors of that experience and wrote about it in a monumental work through the Valley of the Kwai, published in 1962. He describes one oca- on one occasion when at the end of a workday, the tools were being counted before the prisoners returned to their quarters. A guard declared that a shovel was missing. He began to rant and rave, demanding to know which prisoner had stolen it, working himself into a paranoid fury. He ordered whoever was guilty to step forward and take his punishment. No one did. All die, the guard shrieked. All die. He loaded his rifle and aimed it at the prisoners. At that moment, one man stepped forward. Standing at attention, he calmly declared, I did it. The Japanese guard at once clubbed the prisoner to death. As his friends carried away his lifeless body, the shovels in the tool shed were recounted only to reveal that there was no missing shovel. Imagine, Mahaney writes, if you can, the effect upon his fellow prisoners of this man's substitutionary sacrifice for them. It is a profound and moving story of sacrifice and heroism, yet it falls short of being an adequate illustration of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ because there is no 
adequate illustration. Unlike the situation of those prisoners staring into the cocked and loaded gun of a deranged God, you and I do not face death from a fellow sinner. What we face is the righteous threat of furious wrath from a holy God. That is the threat faced by all who have gone astray. By each one who has turned to his own way. In our case, the shovel is missing. There is in fact a great deal more missing. Mahaney writes, but Jesus was pierced for what I should have been pierced for. Jesus was crushed for what I should have been crushed for. So that by believing in him, I would be free. And I would be cleansed. And I would be justified. And saved altogether from the inside out. Friends, our options are these. Either we can create a morality to fit our rebellion or we can accept God's provision for our rebellion. What what will it be for you? We can either pretend that we, we know better than God, that our laws are better and higher than his laws. We can establish a moral frame around our sin, or we can accept God's loving provision for our sin. The one will feel empowering today, but damn us tomorrow. The other will humble us today, but will save us through all eternity. What is it going to be for you today? How did Jesus accomplish salvation? He accomplished it covertly. He accomplished it vicariously. And third, he accomplished it submissively. Look at verse 9. Isaiah writes, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. If, if ever there were a person, a man, undeserving of oppression, it was Jesus Christ. What, why was that true? Because Jesus had liberated the oppressed wherever he had gone. You remember standing in the synagogue of Nazareth where he'd been raised as a, as a little boy. He had the scroll of Isaiah open to him. Another part of this prophecy that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, 
this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. If, if ever there were a man undeserving of affliction, it was Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus relieved the afflicted everywhere he went. Matthew 4, 23 and 24 say, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. If ever there were a man who did have the right to open his mouth in protest. It was Jesus Christ. Why? Because his mouth had only ever been opened to tell the truth and to favor the helpless. But friends, don't forget where all of this began. Even this was the wise plan of Jesus. This was all his idea. Because you see, if Jesus had opened his mouth, and if Jesus had owned his oppressors and his afflictors, where would that have left us? Well, I'll tell you where it would have left us. It would have left us oppressed by guilty consciences. It would have left us afflicted by the burden of sin. It would have closed our mouths before the bar and throne of God, unable to utter a word in our defense. And so Jesus chose to be oppressed. Jesus chose to be afflicted. Jesus chose to be silent so that we would have an advocate with the Father. You remember when Lady Macbeth was washing her hands, sorry to take you back to your English GCSE class, and you remember when her her hands were stained with blood, and you remember she cried out, here's the smell of blood still, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And you remember what Macbeth asked the doctor, canst thou not, can you not minister to a mind disease? diseased, pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed chest of that pearlious stuff which weighs upon the heart. And the doctor replied, therein the patient must minister to himself. Translation, Macbeth, you're on your own. There's nothing that can be done for a guilty conscience Not so says Jesus. Not so. I submitted myself to receive your penalty. I surrendered myself to receive your due. That you could go free. Friends, since Jesus did that, should we not submit ourselves to him? in loving surrender and give to him the glory that he deserves? 
Isaiah tells us that Jesus was buried in a rich man's grave. And if you know the Gospels, you know how that played itself out in human history. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a rich man. He was seeking for the, for the kingdom of God. He, he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus already had died, but granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph buried him in his own tomb that he had purchased. What was the sacrifice of Joseph's tomb for the one who had sacrificed so much for him? Nothing at all. And so should we not then sacrifice our all for the one who sacrificed it all for us. How did Jesus accomplish salvation? Covertly, vicariously, submissively, and lastly, gloriously, successfully. See, when Isaiah first wrote the words we've looked at today, he pointed his audience forward 700 years to the birth and to the life and to the death of Christ. But here as he closes, Isaiah opens a portal into eternity. As he describes for us the victory of Christ on the other side of his bodily resurrection. And he says in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That is following the resurrection. Jesus will watch as millions in Asia and in North America and in South America and in Africa and in Europe and in Australia lose all their guilty stains and are made his posterity. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. That is Quote, over these he casts the robe of his own righteousness. We are not only family members, but wear the family likeness. And then verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. That is like a king dividing the spoil of a conquered kingdom. Jesus will divide the spoil of the kingdom of darkness and plunder it and ransack it and take it all for the glory of his name. And that's what's going on here today as we see Tanya and Amy taken out from the kingdom of darkness and redeemed into the kingdom of of light and to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And all of this, friends, is what Jesus deserves for his salvation. God declares that royal glory belongs to him. Will you disagree with God? Will you despise the one who has already been despised? Will you reject the one who has already been rejected? Will you refuse the one who's already been refused or will you close your mouth in repentant surrender and open it again in wonder and love and praise having been saved by him? 
You might say to me today, Hugh, there's just not enough proof that all of this is true. And to you, friend, I would say, if this prophecy written 700 years before the birth of Christ doesn't convince you, there is nothing that will convince you. Others of you would say, Hugh, I'm not, I'm not bad enough for so costly a salvation. And friend, if that's where you are today, having all that Jesus endured for sinners, then I would say there is nothing I can say to help you. Nothing at all. Because the only people who celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ are those who are aware of the bad news of their sinfulness. But I'd like to close today by speaking to the one among you here who would be thinking to yourself, I am unworthy of this salvation. Hugh, my problem isn't that I think I'm not bad enough for this salvation. My problem is I think I'm not good enough for this salvation. And to you, friend, I would say this, that's the point. That's what the cross was all about. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. Here's an imaginary conversation for you between Jesus and an unworthy person like me. Written by John Bunyan. But I am a great sinner, you say. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will never cast out. But I am a backslidden sinner, say you. I will never cast out. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will never cast out. But I have sinned against light, say you, I will never cast out. But I have sinned against mercy, say you, I will never cast out. But I have no good thing to bring with me. I will never cast out. Friends, that's our Jesus. That's our Savior. That's the one worthy of royal honor. Would you join us today in rendering that to him? That's the question.